Welcome to Touch Podcast, Conversations of Spirit and Body. This is Ryan. And this is Nate. In this episode, Nate and researcher Sean Werner Garcia converge at a restaurant in L.A. to talk about Sean's research on sexuality and spirituality. As you'll hear, they talk about how evangelicals, specifically Baptists, have gotten some things right and some things wrong. The original plan was not to include this part of the conversation because it's mostly catching Nate up on what's been going on in denominational life over the past couple of years. But Sean gives Nate the background and context for her research, and I realize that there are probably a lot of people out there like Nate who only think of homosexuality when they think of sexuality in the church. And this conversation lays out the reasons why that is. Okay, so I'm going to shut up now and just let this very interesting conversation about church, rules, gender roles, the Supreme Court, and the Nashville Statement, along with their food orders and other interesting stuff like patio traffic just run. I think you'll be intrigued. Bacon wrap dates. That's a fun starter. Yeah. Okay, I'm getting that for us. Nice. Are you a wings girl? Not really. Tell us, Sean. Mm-hmm. Tell us your name. Uh, tell us your name, what you do, mm-hmm. and how you got into it. All right. Uh, my name is Sean Warner Garcia. I am a scholar of religion and sexuality. Um, I got into what I do because I wanted to go to grad school and study language and linguistics, and I wanted to study particularly issues of gender and sexuality. Um, I didn't know exactly what issue or community I wanted to do that in, Uh, but I realized that in the scholarly world, people weren't really looking at religion from a critical standpoint that really sort of took into account all the very unique community and meaning-making aspects uh, of religion. And so I wanted to look at that from a, a language standpoint. Why, why sexuality? Why did you get into sexuality? Um, if you don't mind me asking that. Sure, I guess I kind of started out um, looking more at gender issues. Um, and I realized there was a ton of literature about that. And it, it almost felt like the, <clears throat> the um, older issue and sexuality was sort of the zeitgeist and the more interesting, evolving issue, um, both culturally and um, academically. Uh, and it just really, it felt very uh, provoking and interesting to me uh, to look at that. Um, and to really kind of, I mean, looking back at the history of, especially Christianity, there's just so much negativity surrounding sexuality. And uh-huh. I really wanted to see, is there a way that these two, areas, you know, spirituality and sexuality can really be kind of wed together in a a meaningful way where one isn't sublimated to the other. Now, so far what I've talked about, when I've talked about, um, like when we did that last podcast, I talked Mm -hmm. about, I did this little flyer, thank you for sharing it. Mm And it said about church and sex. And everyone that I who who saw that, who I knew when I was trying to do, they're like, "Oh, great, good luck." You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, oh, the polar opposites. It's like, wait, where to go? Where to choose? Yeah. You know, choose a really a big challenge. And mm-hmm. one of the things I did in film school was I tried to twist genres. Mm-hmm. I was like thinking, 
what's the hardest way I can do something and what's the most unexpected genre to do it in, yeah. you know? So it's like playing with the opposites. Mm -hmm. And I've wondered if my interest in church and sexuality was simply playing with the opposites, mm -hmm. the most difficult extremes, mm -hmm. you know, just to see if I can do it mm -hmm. or if it's something else, you know? Yeah. So did that come into play at all? I mean, this is the hardest challenge out there, I would think, for some people. Yeah, and I definitely get that message from both academics and from the Christian communities that I work with. Everyone, when they hear what I'm talking about or researching, they're like, wow, that's so important. Wow, that's so hard. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, exactly. It's, it's partly the challenge, um, you know, of trying to address such a tricky topic that draws me to it. But it's also the fact that I see these things coexisting in people already and they don't even realize the ways in which um, they're already sort of living into these realities of balancing these things that have historically been so just disparate. Now when you say coexisting already, are you, when you say coexisting already, are you meaning co coexisting in how they're trying to adapt to a church environment that's not working? Or are you referring to aspects in the church environment that is working with sexuality? I think it could be a little bit of both. Um, I think people have, you know, personal internal ethics that they live by and they make sense of the world by. Um, and sometimes those align really well with sort of the institutions that have been created to sort of preserve these ethical systems. Um, but a lot of times, you know, people will go to church on Sunday and hear a message in their church that doesn't sit quite right with them. And they still have to make sense of that and sort of integrate it into their lives in a meaningful way. And I think people do this already without realizing that they you know, are pulling from different sources of authority um, and kind of coming up with these personal ethics about sexuality. Yeah. Hey, what's up? How are you guys? Hey, guys. Good. We're going to get some stuff. What can I get you guys? Um, let me jump in here and say that this is where we'd spend 30 seconds talking about how awesome our sponsor is. If it were you or your company, I'd start off by talking casually about your company, add a few interesting facts, and tell our huge listening audience how to get some more of what you got. Now the world knows we are at a bar. <laughs> and we ordered bar food. <laughs> and it's actually, what time is it right now? It's the morning, right? Uh, it's the morning at a yeah. bar, and it's folks. 30. It's ten thirty. Folks are inside watching a football game. So if there's a big woo, <laughs> that's because they're inside the other side of windows, and we're outside where we thought it was going to be quiet. Yeah. Um, but all right. So you're you're talking about um, uh, people. You were just the image you were giving me was uh, folks talking in church, and mm -hmm. there's a frustration. They're getting a reaction towards some things. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead and continue. I think that the messages that a lot of people receive in church, either when they were growing up or even currently, don't always take into account their uh, unique experiences um, and sort of the the culture that um, you know we're all existing in. And so they have to kind of find a way to balance you know their experiences with this. Um, you know, Christian ethic that they're given um, in churches. And I have met so many people that are sort of imagining a new uh, model for thinking about sexuality. Um, 
in a way that's not so steeped in patriarchy and repression and things like that. And it's more based on relationality and uh, covenant, uh, sort of this um, sacred relationship that's not all rules. Thank you. But it's, it's dynamic and it looks different because people are different. Um, yeah, and so that's what excites me. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, now I'm thinking I'm starting to understand this. When we were first talking, you were referring about linguistics, mm -hmm. establishing a new basis of communication. Mm -hmm. So is, is the communication on this, this new approach to t discussing relationality? Mm -hmm. I think so. And I think that Baptist communities in particular are really cool place to look at this happening, this sort of new system evolving, because there's no overarching governing structure to the Baptist community. There's no pope, there's no bishop, there's no one sort of dictating belief and practice from a top-down model. It's very much a, a grassroots, diverse sort of community, uh, Baptists are. Whoa, you just told me that Baptists are a diverse... <laughs> forward-thinking, growing community with the freedom to, like the Wild Wild West. Freedom is all Baptists are about. They were established on five foundational freedoms. Um, some sects of Baptists have gone in a different direction and seem to have forgotten some of the essential freedoms, but um, many Baptist communities still operate from these foundational principles, and so that breeds this sort of beautiful diversity from church to church to church and in different cultural settings. And it's really, it's kind of cool to see from an anthropological perspective how different communities kind of work these issues out. Okay, <clears throat> so step me back. <laughs> I'm gonna take a step back mm -hmm. and then I want you to walk me back in because mm -hmm. I think I got an absolute wrong impression of Baptists because mm -hmm. the Baptists I'm thinking are the type of Baptists are like oh don't have sex before marriage and no dancing and la 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 yep. um, and the Baptist that you just described sounds completely different than what I'm thinking so mm -hmm. can you tell me about the what are the type of if I'm thinking this what type of Baptists are they mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, tell me <laughs> how they differentiate from the Baptists that you're talking about now because mm -hmm. this is absolutely fascinating. My, my brain is blown. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Baptists that you and probably most people think of when they hear the word Baptists are sort of the fundamental portion of Baptists. Um, they are the people that created True Love Waits. They are um, the people that still sort of cling to these really outdated and harmful ideologies about gender and sexuality. Um, you know, they're the people that created the, the, the Nashville Statement. Oh, say that again. They're the people that created the Nashville Statement. And they're very much committed to preserving some ideal of religion and culture that just doesn't make sense anymore. Okay, this is the first time that we've mentioned the Nashville Statement in anything mm -hmm. recorded. Mm -hmm. um, what is the Nashville... When I heard about, about the Nashville Statement, I was talking to one of my buddies. He's mm -hmm. a videographer. 
and I said, hey man, can you help me out with this? I'm doing a piece on church's sexuality. He goes, oh great, and you probably know about the Nashville statement, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, what the heck is that? <laughs> so he gave me his brief summary, mm -hmm. and for the sake of not messing up the definition, mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll mention what that is after you give your summary. Mm -hmm. So what, what's, what is the Nashville statement? So my understanding is the Nashville statement, I think it came out earlier this year, um, and it was a statement drafted by a few hundred different, um, I believe it was mostly Southern Baptist pastors and leaders. And it laid out at least a dozen different, what they called articles, um, sort of defining their beliefs, what they do and don't believe about human sexuality and gender. Um, so, so hot topic-wise, like political term-wise, is this about the gay thing? Is it's always about, about the gay thing okay. for them. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's any discussion about sexuality is almost always going to be brought back to gay marriage. Yeah, gay marriage, homosexuality, okay. things like that. So we're still seeing sort of the the ripple effect from the Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage across the country, um, and so we're seeing many of these conservative fundamentalist religious leaders sort of still grasping desperately at an older model um, and understanding of gender and sexuality. And so the Nashville Statement was sort of their attempt to do that in a, a sleek way. Um, and the timing of it was really unfortunate because I believe it was right in the wake it was either a mass shooting or a hurricane, like a natural disaster. Yeah. It's like days after it. Yeah. Um. Actually, she's right on both counts. Hurricane Harvey was just making landfall, and there had been shootings in Florida, Indiana, California, and New Mexico that week. Okay, back to them. Of course, which these days are so frequent that it's yeah. hard to not be in the wake of some disaster like that. Um, but yeah, it was just... It was received, at least in the religious circles I know, um, people were just horrified um, that, one, they chose to issue this statement at the time they did. It just seemed really tone deaf and insensitive. Right. And two, that it was still just sort of laying out this model of gender and sexuality that's done so much harm to so many people um, and that just does not capture the beautiful diversity of experience that so many religious individuals have, um, which is very much steeped in traditional gender roles, um, very much, you know, sexist and transphobic and homophobic, and it, it was really very sad to hmm. see. Right. Um, yeah. So if we could try to, all right, so here's what I'm sensing. Um, because I used to be a Southern Baptist minister, mm -hmm. I, I know where the, um, when I was a working minister, sexuality was scary. Yeah. Um, and it, to open up that subject would, would ult ultimately ult open up Pandora's box. Oh, no, thank you. No, thanks. Thank you. So to open up, um, the discussion of sexuality seemed like it would open up Pandora's box. Like mm -hmm. so many other things would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that is how I felt whenever whenever sexuality was presented. It's like, okay, don't think about it too much because like this is going to affect everything. So, mm -hmm. if you're thinking about that, you're too uh, you're too focused on sex. You're probably a pervert in some <laughs> illogical way. Just because you're obsessing over it, just let that part go. It's all about Jesus and His love, you know. 
um, and that's more important. Um, so, so that I can I can articulate the force that's trying to um, mm, that gets the the conversation stuck at the political issue of yeah. gay marriage, right? Yeah. So now let's talk about you know just encouraging the the growth of sexuality in the church. Mm -hmm. We want the conversation to move forward. Yeah. Um, and and I think what we just articulated that there there is a group of Baptists that are moving forward with this. Yeah. And so for the sake of moving forward intellectually in conversation, let's let the cliche go of whatever other Baptists you're thinking of. There 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 are different part, uh, and what we're work, what we're looking in is this other new group of Baptists here. Yeah. Okay, so so this new group of Baptists, they're creating a, a language for us to go off of mm -hmm. that's different from the old Baptists, yeah. <laughs> basically, right? Yeah. Okay, and what I'm thinking is that the old Baptists have used the campaign of True Love Waits or the Bible as reference. Mm -hmm. So what other new references that you guys are coming up with? The big word that comes to mind for me is a framework of justice. This is very much tied to other sort of social justice issues for a lot of religious individuals. So racial justice, justice for refugees and immigrants, um, and sexual and gender justice as well. Um, and so this is fitting a framework of evaluating the beliefs that we have and the actions that we do as Christians by a different metric. It's not about personal piety anymore. It's about, does this do good in the world? Does oh. this bring about the kingdom of God in a very real, immediate sense? Whoa. Whoa. <clears throat> okay. I'm not sure if this makes sense. <laughs> so I'm over here learning about Tantra. Mm -hmm. And for me to learn that, I have to stop listening to my brain and start listening to my body. Uh -huh. And I'm realizing my body's telling me, it can tell me different things from my brain. Mm -hmm. And it's an effort to let go of following the old paradigm to follow the new. And what I'm <laughs> interpreting what you're saying is the earth is a body, earth mm -hmm. and all of the, the mixtures of its cultures. Mm -hmm. And if we, list, if we start listening to their, if we start listening to that more so than just doctrine or whatever of the mind, mm -hmm. that's where you're getting, getting your data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that this sort of separation of body and mind has a long history in Christianity um, and also the privileging of the mind over the body and I think that's where the denial of sexuality the repression of sexuality kind of has its roots a lot of time is that as spiritual people we should exist in sort of a plane above our bodies and be able to control our bodies to a certain extent um, in service of our personal piety and our theological understandings. Um, but I think that there is a movement to sort of reclaim the body in service of Christianity and looking at the example of Jesus as the ultimate embodiment of spirituality. Um, and I think that that has opened up new ways of understanding our religion and our experiences as something that's ultimately an embodied thing and that bodies matter and they should be listened to and trusted um, and that they can be sources of wisdom just like prayer or studying the Bible. Um, that these are things that um, are meaningful and they're part of our everyday experience. <laughs> that is so wonderful what you said. And I just thought of an absolutely extreme 
version, interpretation of what you said. Uh-huh. And, and my extreme interpretation was, uh-oh, she's talking about listening to her body. She's a witch! She's a witch! <laughs> and I'm going back to this Monty Python skit. Uh-huh. She's a witch! She's a witch! And then you mentioned about Jesus, like, and then, you know, Jesus being this image Jesus of spiritual. Jesus had a body. Yeah. Yep, it's true. And I'm thinking, oh, no, no, she's making Jesus a witch! <laughs> no, no, don't make Jesus a witch! Starting a witch hunt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's an exaggeration, but, I mean, that's literally, it, that's the nerve it hit. Yeah. The, this work that you're doing, um, it's scary. It's mm. scary work to some people. Um, and uh, it's threatening. Yeah. It threatens so much. And when you think about what it's threatening, I mean, it's more than just how we look at sexuality. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is going to be so weird for me to say, but we have to acknowledge the fact that a lot of these folks who are trying to have this debate, um, they're trying to have this debate in a place of being a career minister in which their reputation is ingrained with 50 plus years of their life and, yeah. and, and, and their grandkids or their, their, their kids, aunts, uncles, whatever. This is, that's a lot of music, but whatever. Um, their church is, uh, that's where they work, that's where they live, that's where they yeah. go to raise their kids, that's where they have, that's their social circle, their, their friends. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's asking them to give up everything mm. when that's not the conversation they were wanting to have compared to people who are needing to have that conversation for healing or reclaiming something. Yeah. And, and it's like these two folks are at a different point in their lives yeah. and they're trying to have a... a um, <laughs> A logistical debate without getting emotions or feathers riled up it, mm-hmm. it's it seems like it's impossible at the get-go yeah it's a deeply personal issue and I think that's why a lot of people sort of tend to shy away from talking about it in community um, it, it feels too personal too raw too risky um, especially for people in leadership um, in churches and faith communities um, but I think that the ability to avoid having that conversation is a type of privilege that not everybody is afforded. Um, Oh, so how you guys, how are you avoiding that conversation? How am I avoiding that conversation? How how does the work avoid that conversation? Um, Well, I know the effects of avoiding that conversation um, is that people in our churches are having to hide their identity. They're having to sublimate their identity for the rest of their identity for a religious identity. All right, I just hit pause. You're going to have to tune in for the next episode where Sean and Nate will get more into Sean's research that surveyed the largest Protestant denomination of the world on topics from sexual assault, consent, and body image to sexual attraction. And her preliminary findings remind me a lot of the Kinsey reports in the 1940s and 50s where individuals report a high rate of difference between their private and public expressions of their sexuality. So stay tuned and connected. Connect with Touch Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and visit our website, touchpodcast.com, for videos, essays, and other extras.